I picked that hymn. We haven't sung it in a little while because of its way of speaking uh, and perceiving who Jesus Christ is and using those words. Majestic sweetness. Um, no mortal not, can with him compare among the sons of men. In today's sermon, we will see something of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who came among us to save us. So I invite you to open in your Bibles to our text from Luke chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 16. <clears throat> I guess I'll start reading uh, maybe in verse 14 to make that transition and hear about the Holy Spirit. I'll start in verse 14. Uh, through down to verse 30 for this morning's sermon. And as you're turning and opening your Bibles, a welcome to those who might be watching our live stream this morning. Uh, We're so glad you're tuning in to hear God's word. May God speak to you and bless you through his word. But we invite you to come among us because God is present with his people here. Hear now God's word. I'll begin in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey his word. Amen. Amen. This is uh, quite a glimpse to see Jesus doing exposition of scripture. A sermon, as it were, of Jesus. And we'll get to how it ended in just a minute. I was thinking, I'm reminiscing, the older you get, the more you do that, about the first time I preached, not the first time as a seminarian where they actually paid me to come to their town, it was like four hours away, uh, in northern Minnesota, to preach to them. That was a delight. But even before that, I'd had some opportunities uh, to preach, um, and I thought back to the very first time, 
I think I ever stood in a pulpit in a church. It was January of 20, uh, excuse me, not 20, 1980. That's a long time uh, ago. I was 20 years old. It had been after a missions conference called Urbana. Urbana was held every three years or one time every two years for students to come the week between Christmas and New Year's, come to Urbana, Illinois, and meet in their big dome, 13, 14, 15,000 students. I was in my freshman year. I was a new convert, and someone made it possible for me to go. So after Christmas morning, I traveled with a carload of college students from Wisconsin down to Illinois and went to this missions conference, and I heard some people. Maybe you've heard of one of the speakers, a very common name, Billy Graham. He was the seventh speaker on the next to the last night. He spoke, uh, the theme of the conference was believing and obeying Jesus Christ. And in the mornings they had expositions. One famous preacher of the day was preaching through Romans. In fact, I was so enamored I used to imitate him when I got back to campus with his voice and his mannerisms. But it was the first time I'd ever had anyone preach to me about Romans 1. Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 8. And then there were missionary testimonies. Um, The names, I could quote them, you might know who they are, that told me how Christianity looked on the mission field. And then, of course, uh, Billy Graham preaching one evening. And yes, there was a call. I went forward and said, I am available for the Lord to use me on the mission field someday. And I still believe that. I would like to be useful to the church overseas somehow, someday. Anyways, I've strayed from my story. This is what happens when you're reminiscing. I came home all excited to my parents. And my dad said, well, would you like to share? Maybe instead of me preaching, you could share about your exciting conference. I can see how exciting it was for you. So he gave up the preaching in this. It was a United Church of Christ, a fairly liberal denomination, to this 20-year-old to share (laughs) to preach, so to speak. No pressure on my dad's part. And I was gung-ho, and I had my notes from Dr. Graham. I had my notes from Romans, and I spoke, I think, something on the the mission of God in Jesus Christ to save sinners. (laughs) And I got out the gospel, and I got out the work of missions, and what the church should all be about, what Christians should all be about. And I don't think I went long, even though I was young. That takes time to get long. And I was so excited and thrilled to share those things. Except I got kind of a cold reception. I've told the story before. A lot of stares. A lot of crossed arms. Who does he think he is to tell me about the new birth? Romans 1, lost in sin. What is this? The nature of faith and the, we should be available to serve God. It was mostly stares and scowls from a liberal church crowd, many of whom were very nice to my family as I was growing up, and they knew me from a little boy. But in that crowd, less, probably about less than 100, similar to here, there was one older couple who greeted me in the back of the church with tears in their eyes and a big grin at what I had said that day. And... I don't remember all their words, but praise God, young man, praise God. And that meant the world to me to find out in that place those believers who had a passion for God's word and his mission. It made up for a lot of the scowls. It made up for uh, the scowl of my own dad at uh, some of the bluntness and the simplicity of the things I was pushing um, Jesus went to preach in his hometown. He had already been undertaking his mission. He had already been baptized publicly. He had been tempted. The text tells us he came in the power of the Holy Spirit back into Galilee, that northern region. He wasn't a limping survivor. He wasn't the walking wounded after his fasting and encounter with the devil. He was strengthened by angels. And I think Bodily, he had a very rapid recovery and was full manly strength as he entered his ministry in Galilee. And he preached and he performed miracles and he had become famous. 
And he came, as was his habit, into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, where he had lived for nigh on 30 years. They knew him well. But he comes as a man with some bit of a reputation. Oh, something happened the other day in Capernaum. Did you hear that? Jesus did this miracle. What? Jesus. And he's in the synagogue. And when it comes time for the reading of scripture and exposition, a rabbi or a leading man of the synagogue might be asked to do that. Jesus stood. They handed him the scroll. He picked his text and he preached. It was perhaps the best sermon ever given by human lips on planet Earth. Because in it, Jesus spoke about the good news that had finally arrived. And he spoke very plainly that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah, the Messiah that Isaiah foresaw. He had arrived and the day of salvation had come. Such good news, such great news, yet... The passage ends with an attempt of murder. They were ready to throw him off a cliff. And that was the the quick and easy way of stoning someone. Instead of picking up stones and stoning him, by that time they had this other alternative way of stoning someone, throwing him against the stones off a cliff into a ravine, a gully filled with stones. But he escapes. So I want us today to see Jesus and hear this wonderful sermon, but in the end, ask this question. How do you react to the person in the preaching of Jesus? That's a very serious question. I don't really care how you react to me as the preacher this morning. How do you react to Jesus who is alive and well? By his spirit, he is still preaching the good news. And if you hear the voice of Jesus today, how will you react? Let's look first at uh, this proclaiming that takes place. We're given something of the setting as, as Luke, he's that careful gospel writer. Luke gives us a lot of information. You can see it for yourself right here in the Bible. Uh, That transition paragraph, verses 14 and 15, the power of the Spirit. He was busy. He was doing ministry. And in the midst of that ministry comes this episode in Nazareth. Uh, As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They worshipped on the Sabbath. And the synagogue becomes the model, really, for Christian worship because the temple would be torn down and Jesus would fulfill temple functions. So the synagogue style of worship would really form what New Testament Christians did. We'd gather, we'd sing, we'd pray, we'd read scripture, and then we'd expound upon it. And then we'd also add the Lord's Supper. So the synagogue worship is uh, that beautiful preparation for the way we worship today. Jesus stood up to read in honor of God's word, and then he sat down to teach. Interesting, he picked his sermon text, Isaiah chapter 61. You're welcome to to page back and see it in its context. We can't uh, preach both Isaiah and Luke at the same time. Uh, But in Isaiah 61, I'll just point out that it is in the voice of the suffering servant, the servant songs of Isaiah commonly tell us about the Messiah, often using first person language. And you always wonder what that was like in in Isaiah's day. Because Isaiah first said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord is anointed. He said that on behalf of the Messiah. And then Jesus would come as the Messiah. Now you should know that Isaiah is a very long book in Hebrew. And sometimes it's on more than one scroll. That's why a lot of scholars think there were two different books. And I'm not going to get into that. Uh, And if you've ever had a scroll in your hands, it takes a while to find your column as you're turning from one pole to the other, from one axis. Jesus knew what text he wanted. And the way we read the scripture, he found this text. It wasn't just given to him. I know a lot of preachers say, oh, what a beautiful thing. It just so happened. I, I think Jesus searched for this text and gave it out. Which is an interesting reminder how, much, how well Jesus knew his Bible. How easy we have it when you want to find a text. You can Google it. 
hey Siri, where do I find the text? However you do it, learn God's word and find what you need to find. Anyways, Jesus is in the synagogue and he pulls out this text. He is full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is helping him and leading him. And he gives out the text and he expounds upon it. He speaks as the anointed one. And we know that there can be an anointing on a preacher who preaches. There's a special unction when the Holy Spirit blesses uh, more than usual the preaching of the word. That's part of it. Here it's the text that says the Spirit of God has anointed me. The Lord has anointed me. That is the language of calling forth a priest, a king, or the Messiah. Would it help you to know that the Greek word for anointed one is Christ? Jesus is saying, I am the Christ. As he brings up this sermon, he is not only anointed that he gives it with power. He is the anointed one for at his baptism, the father praised and claimed him and the Holy Spirit tangibly fell on him and filled him and was with him through his temptation and brought him in the power of the Spirit back to Galilee to begin this mission. So what's the nature of this good news? What's the content of the sermon? Good question. Let's take a look. We see here in the scriptures several things uh, beyond just being anointed. It says to proclaim good news. And that's the same expression as we talk about the gospel, the good news. And my friends, if the Bible is about anything, it's about good news. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about good news. God has some news for us. Special report, headline on the TV screen, good news from God. What is it? Let's take a look. Here it comes in four small expressions, but they have a cumulative effect. It is good news to the poor. It is good news to the captives. It is good news to the blind. It is good news to the oppressed. It covers a lot of ground there. What does it mean to proclaim good news to the poor? What is it that the poor hear? They hear something good. And not that they've won the lottery. And, and is this good news? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Or is it both? I think it's both. I think it's both because I've read the Sermon on the Mount and I know how Jesus speaks. I've read it in Matthew as well as in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has in view our whole being, body and spirit. We are together, psychosomatic, body and spirit. And although these are torn apart at death, at the resurrection, we are rejoined to our body because that is how God has made us, male and female, body and spirit soul, personhood. So this is good news to the poor. What about the rich? We live in the richest nation in the world, and even the poor folks here are richer than the poor folks elsewhere. This is a message for both poor and rich, but why does Jesus emphasize the poor? Jesus aims for the lowest common denominator of the socioeconomic strata. Because that includes everyone from there on up. He intends to make a reference for all men. Not just the educated, the wealthy. There is equity of access. Equality of access to this good news. And he starts with the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount he would say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, according to Matthew. But Luke has it just simply, Blessed are the poor. Because all too often God's people are the marginalized one. Those who know their needs the greatest. Who have less resources to meet their needs and to cover with the materialistic band-aid of this age. Their restless soul. 
There was a philosopher and a rhetorician in North Africa named Augustine or Augustine. And his heart was restless. He couldn't fill it with wealth and the delicacies of the food he had access to. He couldn't fill it through the sexual activities he participated in. He would later confess, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Jesus speaks to the poor and reminds them, your hearts will not simply be at rest when you have wealth or power or status. There's greater good news here for you. But make no mistake, God makes promises to his people to shepherd us and to provide for us. It's good news to the captives. And here we have more information, don't we? Uh, to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the same word occurs later when he says liberty to those who are oppressed. Oh boy, if I am a captive, I can be set free. Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to, literally it meant prisoners captured in wartime. Okay, would there be a lot of those folks in Nazareth? POWs? No. But it had broader context for those who were enslaved by their life choices or by the abuse of someone else. So you might think of people that had fallen into slavery. And in Nazareth, that most likely meant those who were enslaved due to debt. They had to voluntarily say, okay, I'll farm your back 40 to pay off the money I borrowed. And they were captive. So Jesus proclaims liberty. Does that mean they, they get out of debt instantly? Is it just physical or is it spiritual or is it both? The Lord helps his people to live so uprightly and to be wary of borrowing and lending that they might be freed from its consequences physically. Our enlightenment, the wisdom of God, the guidance of God can liberate us that way. And hasn't Western civilization in part flourished because of the fruit of the gospel at work in the Western Tradition? Likely, yes. But here he has the spiritual focus. The word he uses can mean release for those who are enslaved. It can mean release from debt. And as the Bible uses it, it can mean forgiveness. Because there are captives in the war that rages between Satan and God, our maker. Satan strives to keep men and women for himself. We are enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. You can read the beginning of Ephesians 2 if you've forgotten. Jesus comes to preach spiritual liberty and the forgiveness of sins. Good news to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. Did Jesus ever heal a blind man? Yes, several. We even know the name of one, Blind Bart, Bartimaeus. Pretty cool story there. We'll get to it in Luke. But Jesus is not just about recovering physical sight, but spiritual sight. How many times, whether it's in John's gospel or Luke's or others, does Jesus encounter spiritual blindness and speak about it and direct them that their eyes would be open. How many times does the Apostle Paul pray for someone's eyes to be opened to the gospel? <clears throat> it is one of the dominant biblical metaphors for being lost and then seeing and believing in the Savior. Jesus is speaking here of both. You'll see me do these miracles, but even more so, you will understand that suffering servant and the benefits I have for you, for your soul. You'll see God and fall at his feet. This exact word, sight for the blind and the ability to see, was used on the Emmaus Road. If you know the story from the end of Luke, we'll get to it eventually, Luke 24. The two that walked with the resurrected Jesus were kept from seeing him as he was until the breaking of the bread at the end of the day. Then their eyes were opened. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke with us? The, the light bulb goes off and they see. 
Let's remember that as we deal with those who are so confused in our culture that they can't see the two genders God has made, those confused in our culture that they can't see the danger of greed and materialism or uh, immorality and fornication. They think everybody's doing it, it's fine. Those who are so blind to spiritual and moral realities, Jesus can open their eyes. He can. He can raise the dead. He can cure leprosy. He can cure cancers. He has incredible power. Sight to the blind and to the oppressed. Here, I want us to see this word oppressed in in the context, uh, not simply of being treated unjustly by your landlord or your boss or your neighbor. Um, Philip Ryken says that the oppressed here are anyone dominated by powerful forces of evil in the world, including people who have suffered the cruelty of verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. He asserts that in our modern culture, when we talk of abuse, that's this concept. Not just in a marriage or from a parent or from a boss or some superior or or some authority who's done you wrong. I think the conversation about oppression and social justice uh, can really go astray. But hear this, the Bible talks about this, and we'll see it in Luke as we go along. Jesus has something to say to the oppressed. Liberty, the same word for release, for forgiveness, for change. Jesus even used this word to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When he was speaking later on in Matthew 26, in the deep conversations he was having about why he had to die. Matthew 26, verse 28, he uses this term and it's translated forgiveness. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sin. The exact same word he would have read if he read Isaiah 61 in Greek, as we see it here, liberty. When he talked about his death on the cross, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their liberty. Don't simply make Jesus ministry of liberty about politics, socioeconomic freedom, and have a liberation gospel, unless it first is spiritual forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. Then one more comment here about this uh, gospel he's proclaiming here is he uses this uh, expositionary word in verse 21. Verse 20 and 21, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were upon him and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. That is a significant word. Because it didn't necessarily mean at uh, uh, 10 hundred hours on Uh, This particular date in whatever time zone uh, Nazareth was in, mark it down, start the digital clock. No, he meant a new day, a new era, the day of salvation. In these last days, God has spoken through his son. We are living in the last days, days of salvation through Christ before the day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. This is a day of salvation and it's open because Christ the Messiah has come. Christ the Messiah will live and die and be raised again so that we can be set at liberty. The day of fulfillment has arrived. How could he say that? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not in its entirety. He had yet to meet Zacchaeus and set him free. He had yet to meet the thief on the cross and set him free. But it began that day and there was no turning back. He had come. He had been anointed. He had begun proclaiming. 
And people regained their sight. They could leap for joy if they had been a paraplegic. And they knew the forgiveness of their sins because of Jesus and the good news he proclaimed. Good news from God. And he says, there's no going back. This changes everything. Some of us are old enough to remember how certain events changed our world. I guess in this current generation, it's 9-11, changed it so much. The way we live, the way we think, the way we feel. For our parents and grandparents, it might have been December 7, 1941, a day that shall live in infamy. Or for others, it was some other personal date. Whatever our needs, our fears, whatever oppresses us or abuses us, this is good news. There's help. There's help for you to be able to grasp There's help with those who oppress you and those who abuse you. There will come justice. Jesus, the shepherd, thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. You'll prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You are with me. That changes everything from this day forward. I loved reminiscing about 1979 and 1980 because in 1978 the summer of 78 I was born again and everything changed for me when Jesus says today he's changed history but there's a problem let me press on to what the verses go on to tell us No sooner had Jesus made that declaration, you would expect cheering. And they'd put him on his shoulders and they'd march him around Nazareth. Oh my goodness, it's the Messiah and he's from our own hometown. No. They're looking. They said, that was a good sermon. I like that part. I love that passage. Isaiah is so nice and comforting. I really was blessed by that. But that part at the end, that still confuses me. He said, today... And, and, and maybe he said other things. They're thinking about that. And as they marvel, verse 22, at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, they also said, isn't this Joseph's son? They heard the scripture. God's anointed has come with a message for all these people. The spirit of God is upon me to preach. The Spirit of God is upon me. Or is this Joseph's son, the carpenter guy? Oh, I remember that time that the log fell on his foot. He didn't curse at all. Or whatever they're thinking. They're they're thinking of him as Messiah? Man. The man we know. Joseph's son, as it were. Oh, you know, there's a question. Is he really Joseph's son? And as they begin their speculations... They lose the word of God. They're marveling and asking. And like Peter, when he got out of the boat to walk on the water, he was fine when he kept his eyes on the Jesus who could rule the wind and the waves. But when Peter looked at his own human feet, when Peter looked at the water under those human feet, he began to sink. He takes his eyes off the divine Lord. What is happening in the synagogue in Nazareth? The the word of God is left and not considered as they just look at the human Jesus. You know, he he grew up, it's just a couple of houses over and they they don't even have a garage. I, I remember how poor they were growing up. And he's telling us that he's the Messiah. There's this expression, you can see it in my outline, familiarity breeds contempt. Perhaps you've heard it, not fully understood it. I would think the extreme example of that maxim is Jesus being weighed in the balances in Nazareth. Familiarity, we know what that means, you know something really well. Oh yeah, we know this guy. It breeds contempt. 
You don't fully appreciate something when you hold it in contempt. You don't want to recognize its validity, its significance. You disregard it and you demean it. You hold something in contempt. I'm not going to honor that. I'm not going to react as I should react to that. We know the expression contempt of court. When someone's speaking and not treating the court of law and serving the truth, they get the gavel and they're held in contempt of court. The congregation in that synagogue looked at Jesus, had heard this pronouncement. They knew something of his life, but their familiarity with him breeds contempt, and they don't give him the honor he deserves. Instead, they are saying, how do we know? How can this be? And they begin to demand proof. As one said, his preaching was not enough. And and you know, God realizes that. When God so loved the world and he sent his son, he didn't just send a preacher, did he? Did he? Jesus came doing signs and wonders as well as preaching. And when Jesus sends out his apostles during that transition to the church age, the apostles could not only preach with the authority of Jesus, They could as well do signs and wonders. The apostles could do miracles. Peter, Paul, raising people from the dead like their Lord. So that apostolic transition period had both. But with the historical record fixed, we now have the word of God primarily and God's powerful works in and among his people in general. And we are called to believe the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul would later chastise the Corinthians. If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Those Corinthians who were so cosmopolitan and elitist in their thinking. He would say plainly to them. A mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. He would say 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and following. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's both. For the foolishness of God, Paul says, is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. You remember that passage. Jesus is the real deal, not just a preacher with the wisdom of God, but full of power. And he could control the wind and the waves. He could heal the human heart. He could say to the paralytic, stand up and walk. You think that's a big deal? Listen to this. Your sins are forgiven. And that person's life of lechery and lust and and every selfish sin expunged. His bill, his record in heaven Paid in full. You're forgiven. And you know what? You're adopted. Come here, buddy. Jesus has the power and the message. The people knew he had done miracles. They compared him. That's not very far away. Some of them might have even been there. And they hear the word now, but they're still dragging their feet. They desire proof. Before I go on to Jesus' response, let me ask you. The sermon's not done yet, but let me ask you, how do you react to Jesus? Is his preaching enough? Is his word enough? Or do you sit in judgment over the word of God and seek some kind of miracle? God, give me some kind of a sign. I've spoken of my own life. Before 1978 came 1977. My first visit to upstate New York, there was a Young Life camp. I heard the gospel there. God was working. He was stirring. I remember sitting by the the beach in that camp. Or Saranac Lake. Sorry, Saranac Lake. And saying, God, if, if you could just move the clouds away from the moon, I'll know that you're real. I'll know that that message was meant for me. Literally, I said that. And I stared at the full moon behind the clouds for an hour or more. God, I I heard that gospel call. I'm inclined to go forward, but can you just like move the clouds away from that moon? 
Do something for me. Sitting in judgment over the word of God. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Familiarity can breed contempt. A desire for proof can eclipse the need to put your faith in the truth. So how does Jesus reply? Let's look at him. He knows He knows what they're thinking. So Jesus carries the action, doesn't he, in Luke's account. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Physician healed yourself. In the ancient world, medicine was a very suspect activity. Nowadays, we trust our doctor. He says, take two of these, you take two. You don't even know what they are. Admit it. Back then, uh, you want me to take what? You take it first. Physician, if you're going to prescribe this for me, have you ever tried this? There was skepticism and healthy doubt. And so people would say, you know, I want to see you do something for me first before I take your word. So Jesus knew that's the way they were taking the word of God. Isaiah had been read. This was the room and the place of worship. God had spoken. And they're really putting God to the test. And they say in Jesus' explanation, he says, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We want to see you do something. Can you walk on water? Can you change the the, the water into wine? That was Herod's thing, right? Same symptom of a sinful heart, putting God to the test. His proverb is answered with another proverb. He says, but in truth, I tell you, verse 25, excuse me, verse 24. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I think that's the ancient Hebrew way of saying familiarity breeds contempt. You're not accepting me, and that's, it didn't start with me. God's people have resisted his prophets for a long time. And that was the problem for the hometown crowd. But isn't it amazing when we have this great gospel event, the scene is still going on. Jesus still has something else to say. And when we look at our text it seems to take as much as that beautiful quote from Isaiah and the gospel. And, and there's so much more in this midst. What else does Jesus say at the end of this event? And why, why, what's happening here? We need to see this and hear this because it tells us what's important. So let's look at these pictures of spiritual realities at the close of this passage. Jesus is still speaking As he begins verse 25, he connects it with what he's just said, but it's a contrast. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. He's going to talk about the days of Elijah and the days of the follow-up prophet, Elisha. You can remember the order. It's kind of alphabetical. Elijah first, then Elisha. You can read about it in the Old Testament. Kings, I forgot the reference. And when we're reading this and we're wondering, why is he talking about widows and and some uh, guy named uh, Naaman the Syrian? If you don't know those stories and you're reading the Bible, go read the stories. Okay, don't be ignorant. Go find out what Jesus knew and what he was alluding to, because that's part of what he needs to tell this audience. He is giving a picture of faith as well as a picture of judgment. First, faith. In the first, he talks about this widow of Zarephath. We don't know her name. Uh, She had a son, and she only had enough flour and oil for one last meal. And she tells God's God's prophet was on the run. He shows up, and he says, can you make me a meal? Uh, And the woman says, "Uh, I was just going to make myself a meal and my son. Then we're going to die because it's the last food we have. And the prophet says, make me a meal. And you will live. God will provide. What? Give you my last meal? What is he saying? He's given her a little sermon. He's the prophet of God. He makes her a promise, offers her something that she will have what she needs to live if she responds in faith. And she responds in faith. Okay. Stirs it up, makes it for him. 
And her oil did not run out, her flour did not run out. God supernaturally provided for her. Famous story, you should know it. The widow of Zarephath, but that was out inside, and that's outside Israel. That's Pagansville, man. You know, the county name up there was Baal. It's a bad place, this widow. But there's another story. Jesus goes to the life of uh, Elisha, and he's talking about prophets because there was some tension and rejection, just as Jesus was being rejected. He says, you remember Naaman, who had leprosy. He was healed by Elisha, the famous Syrian general. Maybe we need to think of someone coming from Iran or Iraq from the Imperial Guard going over to Jerusalem. Okay, not a very welcome person. And he comes to the prophet, and the prophet doesn't even want to greet him in, in, indoors. He says, tell Naaman to go wash seven times in the river, and he'll be cleansed. What? You want me, as important as I am, to do something this simple to get rid of my leprosy? He had the word from the prophet of God. Would he receive it by faith? He did. And he went and washed, and his leprosy was gone. Jesus is talking about a widow an Assyrian general outside of Israel because they accepted the prophet's word and walked by faith. And God set them free. God blessed them. My friends, it's not only a picture of faith, but it's a picture of judgment. How does Jesus couch this? We see the language. There were many widows in Israel. But only this one I'm going to talk about. And, verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. None of them was cleansed. He's saying, you people, you reject God's prophet." And with the rejection of God's prophet, you're rejecting God's word and judgment will come upon you. God, even through me, will take my message to the Gentiles. You reject the prophet, there's a price to pay, guys. Don't repeat the sins of the past. There is faith portrayed here in the widow and the general. There's judgment portrayed And in the end of the passage, there is the premonition of the cross. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Stone him. Not just reject the message, but stone him. Here in their sinful rejection of the word and of the prophet, the Messiah we see a premonition of the cross. For at the cross, the crowds would not receive the message of Jesus and would cry, crucify him, crucify him. And as Jesus hung on the cross, they would mock, physician, heal thyself. And and they wouldn't use that phrase. But as Luke says it in 23, chapter 23, the people stood by watching, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And we know from the gospel accounts, they watched to see if Elijah would come or there'd be some miracle. That's the heart of disbelief. That is a heart unwilling to receive the word of God and to submit to God's sent one. So we have a premonition of the cross here as well in Nazareth. One scholar thinks Jesus never returned to preach in Nazareth after this event. This was their one shot to hear the gospel and believe. Today may be the only time any of us have to hear and believe the gospel. As a young pastor in Massachusetts, I preached to a woman named Dorothy and her husband was in the congregation. In the afternoon, he was mowing the lawn and he fell over dead. First time as a pastor, I had to go 
to the hospital with a spouse and sit at the foot of a bed with the dead spouse there on a Sunday. You know not what a day brings forth. If God is speaking, if the Holy Spirit is making this good news good to you, believe it. Don't sit on the fence saying, well, if my life makes it convenient or you convince me in some other way. No, because then your faith is in the miracle, not in the Messiah. Then your faith is in something else. Submit to the word of God, the preached word of God. Jesus is the anointed one filled with the Holy Spirit who sets men and women free. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel accounts, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We thank you for making it so clear that Jesus is your son, attested by signs and wonders. He changed the lives of many. He rose from the dead. His grave is empty. He is alive today. And your word still comes to us. It still comes to human ears. Open ears, open hearts, open minds to see this Jesus. To repent and believe in him. And enjoy the good news. To be set free. To be adopted and welcomed in heaven. Father, bless the preaching of your word this day. In every place it's preached. In Jesus' name, amen.